Silence. Sometimes that's the best intro. Then we kick it to the opening theme music. What is up, my nerds? Welcome inside Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. I'm Jake. I'm Paul. Welcome back inside our crazy brains. We are back, Paul, to the OG, the early morning recording, because I am now an illustrious team manager. (laughs) It is like old times. This is how we started the podcast. Early in the morning. Drag ourselves into a dimly lit cave. Eat a sausage McMuffin or two, record away. Oh, man, that's that's what I might miss about those uh, early morning recordings the most. The sausage McMuffins. Oh, so good. So good. Oh, man. McDonald's breakfast, they have a way with breakfast. I will say the, the old steak, egg, and cheese bagel might have been their best breakfast item ever. Nah. One of the best in fast food even. I don't know if I would agree with that, but have you ever? Did you have it though? No, no, I See, never did. But it sounds not good. You wouldn't think, you know, you wouldn't think steak from a fast food restaurant, but it was surprisingly exactly. tasty. See, steak as a breakfast food is strange to begin with, and then you wonder McDonald's and steak. I'm not sure if that really goes well together. But right, I, I totally get the skepticism. But you're not a steak and eggs guy either. Is that? I'm not a steak and eggs guy. No, no. I I need my sausage. I need my bacon. I am a traditionalist when it comes to breakfast. Traditionalist according to what culture, Paul? My own culture. Well, speaking of things unrelated to breakfast, (laughs) we are doing a full-on Marvel show this this go-round. But not, not in the traditional sense, but also sort of very traditional in that We are doing a full deep dive into season one of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier that is now fully released on Disney Plus, all six episodes. Technically, uh, at six episodes, I would call it a mini series. But yeah, I would agree. That's me. And inspired by that, we're doing a Heard So Good for a 1990 (laughs) flick called Captain America. That's right. Not only was Chris Evans not the first Captain America when he played Captain America in the first Avenger, he wasn't even the second. We're talking about the second, and that's the 1990 version. There was a 1979 sort of like TV movie pilot, right, of where Captain America wore like a yeah, dirt bike yeah. helmet. But we're not talking about that one. <laughs> We're talking about the one where he puts on a crappy latex suit, where they put a crappy latex suit on J.D. Salinger's son. He wasn't really J.D. Salinger's son, was he, he really? Is. Matt Salinger is J.D. Salinger's son. That is pretty fascinating, actually. That's a nice catch in the ride. Thank you. Yep, thank you. I've got more where that came from. So we're talking about the 1990 Captain America that was not released until 91 or 92, depending on where you lived. But that's uh, that's the kind of film that hurts so good, potentially. So that's that's really promising. When you take a famous author's son, an unreleased straight-to-video Yugoslavian Captain America film, 
you know you're in for a rip-roaring time. And of course, we'll wrap up the show the way we always love to wrap up the show with the most least important thing. But for now, it's time for The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Disney Plus is running hot and heavy with these series, these MCU series. We can no longer call it the MCU. We have to come up with a new term because they're no longer just cinema. They're TV shows now. Mm -hmm. And they're just blasting away at us in 21. Goodness gracious. First WandaVision or uh, Loki's coming up this summer. Now it's... Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And I, I tell you what, these first two entries that Disney Plus has given us, WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, they have both been surprisingly good in very, very different ways. Deeply unique and uh, different from one another. And yet some interestingly similar similarities. And I say similar similarities on purpose because I think it is interesting to see where these shows uh departed from each other stylistically tonally um, with the way they tried to attack the subject matter as well as the characters inside of them. And yet I think there's some, there, there are some crossover between things that they both did well or not so well. And so we'll say right up here, this is your spoiler warning for the Falcon and the winter soldier season one. We're going to get there. We're going to dive into the, the nitty gritty as Nacho Libre would say. And so if you have not yet watched it and you care about spoilers, you're going to want to skip ahead to where we talk about latex, winged eared, rubber eared Captain America later in the show, or just come back and let, and so there you go. There's your spoiler warning. Paul, give us a brief setup. Give us a brief setup for the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Falcon and the Winter Soldier essentially takes place after the events, of course, of Avengers Endgame. The original the original Captain America is gone. Chris Evans has ridden off into the sunset to live out his old life with his former big squeeze. Oh, she's dead. And uh she's well, yeah, she's dead. But he it wasn't for, for, for Captain America. Steve Rogers had a nice life with her, right? He did, but but he didn't ride. He that by the time he came back around at the end end of Endgame, she was dead. Oh yeah, yeah, it's true. He had his life though, so it was all good. But there's uh there's this weird. He, he Captain America gave his shield to to Sam Wilson, the Falcon, um, with the insinuation that he was going to be the next Captain America. As we learn at the very beginning. Sam's not necessarily, he doesn't really feel like he's deserving of the shield or that it's too, it's a weird responsibility. And we get into some very, very fascinating wrinkles, I think, on why he is reluctant to pick up the shield, Um, but maybe why he should have. As he's, as he's wrestling with this in the first episode, we see this, uh, this, um, terrorist group that's beginning to make noise um the government actually gives the shield to this newcomer essentially john walker who becomes quote-unquote the official new captain america and the 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 story sort of unfolds from there 
we learn that that there are some very strange things going on. They have uh, the terrorist group wants to reset the world um, like it was during the blip. And there's a lot of people who sort of get into that because they're they're sort of these anti-nationalists. Um, meanwhile, John Walker is this fervent nationalist, as you will. He he represents a hero that one would think is is inherently nationalistic, and um, you feel the tension actually more and more between just those two forces: this this nationalistic Captain America, this anti nationalistic terrorist group. And it forces you to to sort of think about those two sides. Meanwhile, um, Sam and and his buddy Bucky, the former Winter Soldier, are going through their own things. Uh, Sam is trying to save the family boat. Bucky's trying to get over the grief that he caused so many people when he was the Winter Soldier. Meanwhile, they're trying to stop this terrorist organization from killing people and trying to figure out what to do with this new Captain America who, as the series goes on, becomes much less like the Captain America we know and love and, frankly, need. And therein lies... That's it's a great summary. And therein lies, I think, uh, probably the, the most compelling bits of The Falcon and the Winter Soldier just the complexity of the storylines that we're dealing with, uh, with Sam Wilson and what he's wrestling with both as an individual and, uh, as a, a public civil servant of a country that he doesn't feel like has served him and his family very well. Uh, you have Bucky dealing with the fallout of who he's been, who he wants to be, who he is going to be moving forward. You have, the implications with John Walker, with the flag smashers, a, a show that the MCU, I don't think has mostly avoided being too one note overall, but this is newly nuanced territory for the Marvel cinematic universe. I would say, uh, when or not winter soldier. Yeah. Captain America, winter soldier was in probably the most nuanced film in my opinion, in terms of how it dealt with, uh, the themes of, um, you know, yeah, of, uh, absolutely. of, 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 of my brain blanking and completely being unable <laughs> to think of the themes from Captain America Winter Soldier. <laughs> but, but it's true. It's true. I think as you were speaking, that's, that is the comparison point that I think is most appropriate. You know, Captain, Captain America in the Winter Soldier, that was, stylistically tonality tonally the closest to this show it was this espionage thriller type of a thing gritty rooted in reality and it really talks about sort of this disillusionment with the institutions that uh that we trust and that uh, that the original captain america back in the 1940s held so dear what does that do that that institutional distrust is all over the place in Falcon and the Winter Soldier, and I think rightly so, right? I, I think that one of the great tension points and 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 one of my favorite things about this was you have you have Bucky Barnes, 
who came from a 1930s, 1940s environment. He grew up with the red, white, and blue. He knew that America always stood for what was right and what was true. They were the they were the heroes of World War II. Da 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 da. That was when patriotism was in and cool, and kind of maybe sort of a little bit warranted from a certain point of view. Sam Wilson comes from a very very different point of view. He he has felt the the crush of institutional racism. He knows the difficulties that 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 a black man has to to make his way. There's there's just roadblocks that he finds um, that that he has to deal with day in and day out. That 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 maybe a, a, a white uh, white America just doesn't quite understand. He knows America's weaknesses. He knows their problems. He knows their institutional flaws. Um, one of the things that I loved about this move, this this series, is when when Sam says, "Listen, I know these problems. I know the flaws. I fight for this because of what America could be." And I think that's a great landing point in, in, in essence for the entire series. I, hopefully I didn't spoil too much just by saying that, but I think the idea that he still, he understands the weaknesses and yet he's willing to fight for the strengths and for what could be the strengths is, is kind of the moral core of the movie yeah. or the, the series. The series. And uh, I, don't apologize, Paul. We're going full spoilers. Don't apologize for being a little spoilery. Well, because exactly to the opposite, or not the opposite, but to the conclusion of my the point about the complexity and the nuance that the show is dealing with, I think that's also where it ends up struggling in terms of being able to cover as much complexity and nuance as it wants to inside of a six episode run while also being a fun action series and a bit of a buddy comedy at times. And those are a lot of competing priorities to, to fit in. And you definitely couldn't have done it in one movie. You, you needed a series, but even six episodes felt too short. And I just am curious yeah. as to, to why Marvel Disney plus felt the need to do it in six episodes when they didn't need to put that constraint on themselves. Is that a, was that a COVID thing? Was that, uh, was that just a creative decision? I, I don't know. That was the part that kind of confused me the most because kind of the deeper you got into the season around episode four or five, you're like, they are being so meticulous and nuanced about the motivations of John Walker as the new Captain America about Sam Wilson dealing with his family and the revelation of Isaiah Bradley, right. As the, uh, a black super soldier that was horribly abused during uh, the Vietnam war and yeah. Bucky's yeah. dealing with his issues and, Oh wait, they want us to feel empathy with the flag smashers and Carly Morgenthau. And, uh, Oh, now we got to deal with Sharon Carter coming back in the picture and Baron Zemo and the Wakandans and, you're like they don't have, they don't have enough time. Why are they limiting themselves to six episodes? It did almost feel, in some ways, like a teaser. It, it felt like this is an introduction to a couple of characters and a lot of ancillary characters um, for future episodes. That's one of the weird things um, about the MCU, as as I guess we'll just still call it for now. 
um, they are always trying to do a lot of stuff and they have to do a lot of stuff with, with each particular um, thing that they're doing. Um, not only are you trying to make a fun show, standalone show in itself, you're trying to introduce a whole bunch of new characters. You're trying to jump ahead in the story, set the table for what comes next. And I also have to think that that cost may be an issue because, you know, just six episodes, Disney spent $150 million on this thing. That's a lot of money. And it's on a platform that I don't know if you're going to get a lot of new people subscribing just for Falcon and the Winter Soldier, right? Um, it's not like you can make a movie and you're expecting ticket sales to roll in. This is this is a free, quote unquote, a free show if you subscribe to the service. And and so I do wonder if maybe cost has as is involved if if. And and it might be just a time constraint thing too. It's it's hard to say, but I would agree that in some ways, this is a world I would have wanted to spend more time in. The story clipped along really well, but yeah, I could have I could have spent more time here. Well, and and it's it just felt as though they were making decisions in terms of how much time they wanted to spend on the character development that felt like decisions you make if you think you're going to get 12 episodes versus mm. if you're only getting half that amount of time, then I think you make different decisions. And so it, it, is it a budget thing? I don't know. Uh, maybe Disney is choosing to, to be a little bit more stingy, but I look at what Netflix has done just as a business. They have, they've made it a point to overspend every year on content development because, you know, they believe to win, they've got to have the best content that keeps people around and that that's how they win the streaming wars. And so it seems like Disney's taking that approach, at least with the MCU uh, content that they're just cranking out right now. And I mean, WandaVision got nine episodes. So I was just curious to see uh, a show that felt nine half hour episodes. Right. And they were shorter episodes. Fair. But uh, Mm -hmm. still, it felt to me that Falcon the Winter Soldier was even more thoughtful and nuanced than WandaVision was. And yet got fewer, fewer episodes. So that's an interesting point. And I think that that's a that's a good thing to talk about just for a bit is the the compare because you've got to compare Falcon and the Winter Soldier to WandaVision, right? Those are the two properties that we're most familiar with in sort of the post blip MCU. And um, I I think I would you're saying that that Falcon and the Winter Soldier is a better show. Is that what you're saying? No, no. I just thought it dealt with the, I thought it was more nuanced in mm-hmm. even than WandaVision and dealing with the characters and what they're, and, and that's saying something because I thought WandaVision was pretty nuanced in how it was dealing yeah. with her grief and uh, her relationship with Vision, I thought was relatively nuanced. And yeah, but I thought Falcon Winter Soldier it, was much more you- so, much more deep. There's such different stories, and I think that that you there's there's an interesting juxtaposition between the two, right? Because um, Falcon and the Winter Soldier is dealing with issues. This is this is one of the most issue centric um, things that I've seen in in the MCU ever. I, it really wanted to deal with with uh, with 
topical struggles that we're dealing with as a society. It was really struggling with the idea of what is heroism? What does it look to truly be a hero? It was dealing with some very, very complex um, topics that that are really worth dealing with. WandaVision, it, I would argue that it's probably just as complex, but the, but the focus was shrunk. And, and, and literally, the whole world was shrunk into this tiny town, but, but the, the story itself was much more of a family story. It was much more about relationship and, and love and grief and, and what it means to deal with that. I, I, would, I would argue, <laughs> and in some ways, this feels almost too cheap or too obvious, but, but it does feel like, like WandaVision was very much an internal show where it, where it focuses in on house and home and brain and mind. While Falcon and the Winter Soldier sort of burst out into the world, the wider world, and it wanted to really examine issues from there. So both really complex, both really satisfying in their own ways, but so different and so hard to compare. Yeah, I mean, it is apples to oranges at some point, like you said. They they have very different focus. One is very tightly drawn inside of a very enclosed space, and one bursts out, and there is no, literally, in some characters' minds, there are no borders to the story of and the, the morality and the complexity at play in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. And stylistically, it... They're very, very different shows. I mean, after episode one of Falcon and the Winter Soldier, my wife was like, that's that's a Marvel show right there. You know, you have the bombastic, <laughs> explosive helicopter bodysuit scene. You've got some, you know, good hand-to-hand combat. You've got uh, international intrigue. You've got some really good emotional moments with Bucky and his therapy that still have a little bit of that spy and espionage tag to it. It was just clearly going to be a vastly different show. Um, and yet I'm going to take some mm. contention. I thought that the similarity in spite of the, the, the big differences between sort of the tone and overall character of the two shows, I thought that both ended up being very unsatisfying from my perspective, oh although my I really enjoyed the way that it's set up. Although I really enjoyed <laughs> how they played with the characters. I enjoyed a lot of the, the complexities that were introduced. I thought both struggled with landing the plane. Yeah, I disagree. I disagree. I think, I think I, I enjoyed, um, I think WandaVision was a stronger show in a lot of respects because it was really unlike anything we had ever seen. And I think that it did struggle a bit more with the landing. Falcon and the Winter Soldier felt very satisfying to me at the end. And one of the reasons why I think it was satisfying is is I, I did like sort of the how it tried to deal with the big issues that it was struggling with, you know, essentially, you know, the, the racial issues that, that it was really tackling. These are problems that we've been struggling with in our country for literally more than a century. And, and we are still trying to figure out how to grapple with that. Um, I thought that, that the ending in, in Falcon and the Winter Soldier was, was both realistic and hopeful. 
um, in terms of finding a way forward in terms of finding, you know, I, I think that, that it didn't try to brush aside these concerns. It said that these are real concerns, but the, but the idea that you had uh, Sam Wilson picking up the shield finally and, and fighting for this country that in some ways had, had wronged him and people who were closest to him. Um, again, fighting for those ideals, I think that was a really satisfying conclusion. And the idea that, that he could be embraced as Captain America was, was a sweet story as well. Um, so from that perspective, I think it was really good. The other thing that I think made it strong is it brought to the forefront one of the more complex um, characters that I've seen in the MCU, and that's, and that's John Walker. Um, I, I really liked the interplay between Bucky Barnes and Sam Wilson. I thought that that was a great buddy, as you say, a buddy, uh, buddy show. John Walker to me is a fascinating character because you can see the heroism in him. You can see the villainy in him. Um, and it does reflect, I think, um, some of the conflicted realities that we struggle with in this country as well. The idea that this is a guy who wants to do good, and yet there's just something that he's got some problems that keeps him from being the Captain America that we needed him to be. I, I, I loved how they took pains to make John Walker not a two-dimensional villain, but a three-dimensional character with his own struggles and problems and really good traits and really, really terrible traits, too. And I don't have any disagreement with that. What I felt was unsatisfying was I'll agree. I, I where I absolutely agree that what they did with Sam Wilson, what they did with Isaiah Bradley and that thread, I thought was the best and the strength of the entire show start to finish. And that they did a good job with that. But that was where I felt like the, the complexity of what they wanted to do with Bucky, what they wanted to do with Carly Morgenthau, what they wanted to do with Baron Zemo, what they wanted to do with John Walker on top of that, with these other, what they wanted to do even with the power broker and uh, slash Sharon mm-hmm. Carter. So mm-hmm. five, these five other characters on top of that, that they really wanted to, to deal with these complex motivations, wounds, traumas, uh, interact, interplay with each other, relationships. Like they really kept, I, after every single episode, I was just shaking my head being like, man, they really are messing with our heads about who we're supposed to sympathize with and who we're supposed to to feel angry with this episode and whose who's machina- machinations are in play and who's messing with who. And uh, I was really impressed with the way they were juggling that until it seemed like they just sort of sort of started to cauterize each of those other threads to be like, all right, that's enough Zemo. And we're like, wait, we didn't really get to see him mess around with Bucky and Sam. Like we saw a couple of little, oh, he was slightly manipulative, but I thought we were going to do some more with Zemo. And then ah, Sharon Carter kind of, we see her for an episode and then we forget about her till the end. And then uh, with Carly Morgenthau, you know, I really was appreciating the nuance and the complexity they were dealing with somebody who had a cause that they really believed in, but were struggling with how they went up against the evil that they saw in the world and decide to fight 
fire with fire and become more evil in and of themselves. And John Walker, to your point, a lot of complexity to where we see him first, where he's agonizing over like before being announced as Captain America and different points along the way where you see him be unsure of himself, but then try to lean into this bravado because he thinks his country needs him. And then to snap when, you know, tragedy strikes and then to feel betrayed by those he thought was on his own side and he thought he was serving their cause. And, and then yet in that final episode and, and all the antagonism between him and Bucky and Sam, and then in that final episode is just sort of like, Oh yeah. Yeah. Cool. You're with us now. Like you know, they, they sort of brush over all of that in the finale. And I know they they're trying to set up, What's yeah. come and you call that a teaser, but with all the with all of the way they were very subtle and that the way they let these characters have time to be crazy, to be subtle, to be nuanced, to be complex, it just felt like really abrupt for all those other five characters, and that's where I felt emotionally unsatisfied. Yeah, you know, it, I I don't wholly disagree with you i think but i would take it and i wish that they would have done something maybe different um in in that i think that this was really a story about three characters bucky barnes sam wilson john walker those are the three characters that are are by far the most compelling in this story definitely Uh, well, I, I would i would say they really spend as much time on morgenthau as they do walker I I think, but she was sort of the 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 antagonist. I would say, you know, but John Walker of, has, but also they were not. They were like, well, is she? She's very. She's a very interesting character. It didn't bother me the way they treated her. I think that that's they gave us a lot more richness and depth than you typically expect from a a, a prototypical antagonist. Right. No, I'm saying I like that. I just felt like they cut it short. Yeah, and I don't think they did. I think that when you look at it, what I wish they probably wouldn't have done, Baron Zemo, Agent 13, I almost wish instead of giving us more, they would have given us less. Yeah. Almost taken those characters out because I think to your point, it became a little bit distracting to have these people who were very compelling characters in their own right and not to flesh them out um, was a bit disconcerting. But at the same time, so so I would I would have really appreciated just that tight focus on those three central characters. Yes, I'm with um, you there. But you know, the MCU is the MCU, and it 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 has to set up all these different threads. I thought that that overall, I was still satisfied. <sighs> When you think about when you think about Zemo, when you think about Agent Thirteen, you think a little bit about the construct of one of the un- underlying issues beneath even even the race issues, the the nationalistic issues that the show is dealing with. It really does sort of deal with the idea of of power and of sin, if you will, you know, and and the corruptive the corruptive influence that power has that that how our own weaknesses can be augmented um and and i think that that you do have those those little touchstones of of zemo of agent 13 they kind of they might just sort of be like little little ripples in the pond just reminders 
that these are issues, right? These these issues of power, those are big weaknesses that we might see uh, fleshed out more in the coming coming years. Um, overall, though, I really did find it to be a, a satisfying series. Yeah, I, I mean, I think I can I can overstate my point. I still would put this at a seven point two five out of ten for me. This was an enjoyable series. I really loved <clears throat> some of the set or action set pieces, in particular the one from episode one. Like I said, with the the flight suits and the helicopters and the canyon, and that was really really excellently done. And and even a little bit of a throwback uh, to to Captain America Civil War, where we have Bucky and Sam having to go up against John Walker, John Walker's Captain America in sort of a two-on-one, mano-a-mano, in a remote setting, hand-to-hand combat. Like, I, I was really impressed by the the, choreo- the fight choreography. I was really impressed, too, by some of the, the high cinema approach to certain... Um, to certain scenes in particular episode one uh, where we see a a lot more with Bucky in his therapy and dealing with his trauma. I mean, some of the way they were framing those shots and the way they were having the interplay between Bucky and his therapist. I was like, this is, this is really good television. Like I was, I was really impressed with what they did there. And, And that was part of where, I I didn't like that they couldn't flesh that thread out further after they spent so much time on it in episode one and that, you know, his ultimate finally crossing the last name off of his list of amends was so shortchanged in the finale. Like after it was set up so what, like emotionally in the, the pilot, that was part of that dissatisfaction for That's me. That's who I wanted to see more of. Yeah. Yeah. That's who I wanted to see more of the psychiatrist. You know, the psychiatrist and the relationship between Bucky and this this old man, you know, it's his kind of his connection to the present and to his past in this really painful and I thought uh, powerful way. And uh, so that I think certainly contributes to why it felt less satisfying was I was bought into both Bucky's storyline throughout and Sam's. And I felt like we got a pretty good uh, arc on Sam's. And I felt like, man, it it really stumbled on Bucky's, but it was still an enjoyable show. Still, I'd give it a 7.25 out of 10. It was worth watching, but I would rather go back and rewatch the first seven episodes of WandaVision just for how unique they were. <laughs> uh, you know, whereas it's like, yeah, you know, I enjoyed Falcon yeah. and the Winter Soldier. It was good. And all right. Yeah. That, I, I, I... You know, ironically, I think that that landing is is pretty much where I would land as well. I mean, I think I, I maybe enjoyed the show a little bit more. It felt really confident. It, it competent. It felt pretty satisfying. It felt pretty typical for the MCU that we have experienced before. And and, and frankly, you know, they, they it feels so similar to Captain America and the Winter Soldier. I'd probably swing toward watching Captain America and the Winter Soldier more. Yeah, a little um, tighter of a of a, yeah. of a story. Yeah, even though even though I really did appreciate this story, the first seven episodes of WandaVision, man, nothing like those. I I dug those a lot, and <laughs> they were just they were just a hoot to watch. 
they were a hoot to watch. You just looked really forward to WandaVision when it was coming on. That's one of the greatest things about what Disney Plus is doing. Releasing episodes every week as opposed to releasing them all in mass, it gives you something to look forward to come Friday. I really like it. I know some people aren't and they're just waiting for it all to drop and so they can binge them, but I've really been enjoying the format of the weekly release. I think there's two things we got to hit real quick before we jump over to our Hurt So Good for the 1990 Captain America. One was the bombshell reveal of Valentina Allegra de Fontaine in The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I do have to say that was all about as close to a jaw on the floor reveal as you could get. <laughs> I, I love that, Paul. I'll just, I'll just put my cards out on the table. I thought that reveal and the characterization by sort of another reveal, Julia Louise Dreyfus, was just crazy. So good. Spot on. Spot on. I thought this is this is one of the greatest additions to the MCU that we have seen in oh so many years. She's she was great. Really good. Yeah, it made me a lot more excited for the okay, the threads to come. If they're gonna include the if they're gonna include Valentina Allegra de Fontaine, I'm I'm there because the energy no. she brought I felt exactly like John Walker and his wife in that scene where she entered, where they're just sort of, uh, uh, where I'm just watching it like, what is happening? This is crazy good. Two, for all those that felt like, I think like me, a little bit, uh, a little bit iffy on the Agent 13 being the power broker story thread, there mm-hmm. are some. There's some uh, theories floating on the internet that, of course, we know that they've already announced uh, Secret Invasion for Nick Fury, right? That this series is coming to – the Secret Invasion storyline is coming to uh, Disney+. Plus. And for those who don't know, Secret Invasion involves the shape-shifting scrolls in the comics – uh, like beginning to take over Earth by having their shape-shifting scrolls pretend to be superheroes and powerful, influential figures, stuff like that. And uh, so they're like, "Hey, is this is this one of those? Is this a scroll impersonating Sharon Carter? Is she locked in a space prison somewhere? Wait, but the scrolls have been kind of good guys. What? Where is this? Like, what's going on with that? I had two thoughts on that. One, that would be pretty interesting. But two. Going with that storyline in today's social America's social environment, where there are actual adult human beings who believe that lizard aliens are taking over and inhabiting the bodies of influential people around the world. I'm like, is that an irresponsible storyline to, to be just throwing out there? I don't know. But I did want to note that uh, that would be interesting. We do know we've got Secret Invasion coming. Where's the MCU going with that? Could could Agent 13 slash Sharon Carter be a scroll? We'll see. We'll see. You never know. But now it's time for Captain America 1990 edition. Frozen in the ice for decades, Captain America is freed to battle against arch-criminal the Red Skull. That's Captain America 1990 in a nutshell. Um, yeah, I don't know if you need much more of a recap, right? <laughs> oh, man. 
Captain America 1990. There's some Essentially, liberties taken. It, it, a few liberties taken. A few liberties taken. Um, Red All Skull was Red Skull Italian. <laughs> and he doesn't actually have a red skull. He just has sort of a red blotchy face that turns into a big old regular face with just lots of scars. Yeah, and I mean his the red the first when you do the very few moments you see his red skull, it is creepy if not, you know, particularly Yeah, but effective. not completely. Yeah, exactly. It's not it's not completely skullish though. It's like it's like his skin was ripped off. It's like it's he should have really been called no skin is is what it looked like to me. I so essentially this is really oh goodness how would you describe it? It it's it's an origin story for Captain America and it's an origin story for Red Skull. Red Skull was this kid in Italy who is who is kidnapped by the Nazis of course and turned into this vile person who's very yeah. strong. Um the the scientist who did that experiment goes to the United States and decides to replicate it in the United States, but this time with a willing participant. Um, the, Captain America in his 1940s incarnation lives for about three days. If that he, uh, he, as soon as he is created, Nazi spies shoot up everybody. He including runs off. Him. He, <laughs> yeah, including him, he, he runs off to, uh, to deal with Red Skull. He fights with Red Skull, gets strapped to a rocket. Somehow the rocket is going is going to crash into the White House. He manages to kick it enough so that it blasts into the Arctic instead. He's frozen. For, <laughs> oh, yeah, somewhere in Alaska. He's frozen for 50 years. He's thawed back out. Red Skull is still around. He's still a problem. Captain America decides to save the day once again after his 50-year hibernation, all while riding along in these really very ordinary vehicles and pretending to get sick by the side of the road so he can steal the cars and zip off and do his own thing. And there you have it. This was the era where everybody, where DC was really crushing it compared to Marvel in the cinema, which is funny when you look at all the Superman and Batman movies that were made at the time, they weren't great, but... Oh, they were great. They were way better than this. (laughs) They were great. That's what I was, as, as I was watching this, okay, I was thinking, okay, this was a different era. Maybe we should not be so hard on this movie because it feels cheesy and cheap and really, really shallow. But I was thinking this was the same time that that Tim Burton's Batman came out. Superman had come out 13 years before. It was this fantastic superhero story. Captain America has no excuse for being as bad as it was. No, it really doesn't. This was... Most uh, new to most of us that are new to this uh, superhero fandom are not aware of just how bad Marvel was at movies for so long. Like we're just we've gotten spoiled over the last decade plus with how good they've been, and we're like, oh, DC can't get its stuff together. But this was a great reminder that hey, the tide ebbs and flows, and it was not. Always this way, like Stan Lee was just handing out licenses to Marvel property like they were candy. And you got these like exactly Yugoslavian American adaptations of Captain America where 
Captain America spends very little time in his suit, which is actually ends up being a blessing because it's a terrible suit. And two, very little time in America. <laughs> and terrible. three, very little time being watchable at all. Like he's he's oh, just a terrible goodness gracious. You, he's a terrible he's terrible at fighting. He just really is awful. He is really awful. His his shield it really does look like something that you would you would buy at Walmart. It is really it, the the fact that you know Captain America is one of Marvel's quintessential superheroes, right? The fact that that this company twenty twenty Vision was able to get the license for this thing, it just seems so strange and so surreal compared to where we are now. Um, it, it the the person they chose for Captain America, even if he's the son of a really famous author. He was terrible. He was terrible. I found he had this this quirky little sidekick named Sharon, Shannon, something like that. Sharon. Sharon. She I found her to be a much more compelling character actually than Captain America because he was he was kind of mopey or something throughout most of the show. And I couldn't get over the fact that every single time something wasn't going right, when he really wanted to do something else, he was always riding in a car. He would tell, he was always riding in a car. He would tell <laughs> the driver, oh, you need to pull over because I'm going to be sick. He goes over and then someone comes out, the driver comes out to say, are you okay? Are you okay, Captain America? And then Captain America sprints back to the car and steals it, leaving whoever he's with <laughs> stranded in the middle of the road. I just, this, this does not feel like Captain America should be. This is, this is a John Walker version of Captain America. <laughs> not, not a Steve Rogers version of Captain America. This guy somehow, was kind of a jerk sometimes. And somehow he was even less likable than John Walker. I watched, <laughs> after was. I watched the movie, I watched the Honest Trailer version, you know, that YouTube channel, oh. Honest Trailer. There's an Honest, yeah, trailer, yeah, yeah. There's an Honest trailer for the 1990 Captain America. Oh, I got to like, see that. Gear up to watch Captain America on the big screen as he runs away from the fight. As he runs away from the fight on a tiny bicycle. As he fakes being sick so he can steal someone's car twice. And, and that's true. Like he's always just running away. He's either getting the the crap kicked out of him by either he's getting the crap kicked out of him by the Red Skull or by Italian supermodels. Or he's running away from Italian supermodels. Or... He's pretending to get sick so he can ditch the people trying to help him who are actually more interesting and brave than he is. The movie didn't even think Captain America was a threat to the bad guys. So they had Red Skull sitting out for most of the time just looking scarred and mean. And he sends his daughters out to do his bidding during almost the entire movie because, yeah, maybe maybe Red Skull is just a little too much for Captain America to take on. But Italian supermodels, yeah, yeah, maybe he can, maybe he can deal with them. <laughs> and he deals with them by just running away from them at every turn. I yes, mean, the movie was wrong. The movie was wrong. Uh, and, and here's the thing: I mean, Red Skull, he's he's what? Okay, so he was created. He's 
was what probably in his early 20s when he first meets Captain America. That makes him like over 70 by the time he confronts Captain America again. Ostensibly. And yet and yet he still manages to hold his own against Cap even though Cap is much younger, you know, at least, you know, genetically. His he's got his shield. He's doesn't have 50 years worth of life on him. And he has both of his hands. Red Skull doesn't even have both of his hands. And yet Captain America has a really hard time with him. Yeah, I mean, not just the Red Skull holds his own, but Cap really just kind of gets lucky in the end to even save the day before, you know, the Red Skull has all this nuanced plan about how he's going to brainwash the president of the United States and control the United States remotely from his castle in Italy. And then... As he's beating the crap out of Captain America, he's like, you know what? I'm just going to nuke myself in the entire Eastern European seaboard. <laughs> See you later, Cap. <laughs> As he stands by this piano that is out for some reason on top of this castle in the elements. I'm not exactly sure how they manage that. But yeah, they're like, you know, it, this would be a really striking visual if we have a piano out on the parapet of the, on the edge of the castle on the edge of the cliff. And then he pulls a, nucle- you know, a remote nuclear bomb detonator that's just like on the, you know, one of the decorations on the piano. You're like, you've just been letting that sit out? In the, the, the sun, <laughs> that's and the exactly right. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. It did. It was a pretty picture, but way before I thought, "Oh, that looks nice," I was thinking, "What did the movers just forget to take this thing inside? You can't leave a huge grand piano out there in the elements. That is not wise." It not was wise the scene. It wasn't the scene in one of my very favorite lines of the movie, though. Which, mm. incidentally. Listeners, you can you can watch in its entirety on YouTube when Red Skull turns to Captain America and he says, let's see if this heart of yours is stronger than my hate. I <laughs> I did like that line. That was pretty great. And it, it just made no sense until until, Paul, I scrolled through the credits after the movie was done. And at the end of the credits, there's actually a call to action. And it says, please support the Environmental Protection Act of 1990. The Environmental Preservation yes. Act of 1990. Paul, this entire film was meant as a pro-environmentalist message film. I I do have to say, and that's what it was set up as, right? It, at the very beginning, the the president, this, this well-meaning guy, um, wants to cut down um, 90% of the world's uh, plastics, unrenewable plastics by in six months. Mm. And the general is, is really upset about it. And the president just won't give him the time of day. I do have to say, realistically, you probably can't cut down plastics by 90% in six months. I think I side with the general theoretically on this one. I'm all for renewable resources, but man, let's, let's give these people a little bit of time. I found like, He's like, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. I'm now going to assassinate you. Yeah, I'm going to go in league with Red Skull because of this. Now, they they do try to allude with, my wife missed this. And so maybe, I don't know if you saw this. They have the general later on pull on his earlobe. Yes, I noticed. Which does tie back to 
a younger character 50 years ago who pulls on his earlobe surreptitiously. As he brings in a Nazi spy. So I think it was already implied that he was a, you know, bad guy. And so he didn't just turn on him because of the plastics, but it does feel like a weird tipping point that, that, you know, after 50 (laughs) years of working with the Red Skull and orchestrating the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King and all these other people that you're like, you know what, Mr. President, this is it. You you want me to reduce plastics? I cannot I cannot live by that. You're you're going down. And I found the president to be annoying. I I really did. I thought that he was annoying. He was more heroic, honestly, than Captain America was. He yep. he definitely punched his share of bad guys. But man, I I really just felt like I I would have voted him out of office if I had had a chance. He was every character in here was annoying. It was really hard to pinpoint the most the most aggravating character here. I, but I, I think for my money, it might be Captain America's original girlfriend mm. who he calls throughout most of the movie, Bernie, Bernie, Bernie. He, <laughs> Captain America jumps out of an airplane shouting, I love you, Bernie. Bernie's I was say, that was my favorite line. <laughs> <laughs> that was the strangest. That was really a very strange moment in the movie. But we only see Bernie when she is completely in her worst place in her life. She cries throughout most of the 1940s, as far as we can tell. When we meet her again, she is an old, old woman who then cries a lot because she she only waited 18 years for Captain America <laughs> and she wanted to have children and now she feels bad about it. And the next time we see her, she's dead. The spies shoot her and she's just laying on the floor dead. And it's it. she felt like a very, um, I just, I thought she could have died earlier, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that that was an interesting thing is that they they sort of stuffed two of Captain America's uh, love interest from the comics into a mother daughter combo that was played by the same actress. The actress that played Bernie, who is Steve Rogers squeeze back in the 1940s. Uh, they put old makeup on her to, you know, when she to, so he can meet her again in the 90s. But then she also plays the daughter of Bernie, Sharon. And so you've got and in the comics, you know, Captain does have a love interest with this Bernie Stewart, as well as with a Sharon Carter, right? You know, a Sharon. And so it's like, hey, let's make him a mother daughter thing. Let's have him like be into both of them it was a really awkward decision. <laughs> on their part, especially making them the same character, like the same actress where it's, it's like, it feels weird. Even though it's not technically incestuous, it feels weirdly incestuous. It, it, it felt, it felt a little bit odd. It felt a little bit odd. And I, I don't know. It, it speaks to, uh, it speaks to a whole bunch in this movie that that's where they went. It speaks to Captain America's character that she, he would fall for someone like Bernie in the first place. <laughs> um, it really, I don't know. It was not good any way you slice it. This movie was not good, but delightful in its own way. Delightful in its own way. Even the part that you talked about where he manages to redirect the missile that's about to blow up the White House. Yeah. A missile that's launched, ostensibly launched from Europe, and that he only redirects when he's 100 yards from the White House. 
and manages to redirect it just enough to skim over the White House, but then have enough fuel to fly 3,000 more miles. Yeah, and a kid with the photographic, you know, with a photo with a camera from the 1940s is able to get this very detailed silhouette of a of Captain America while he's riding a missile flying at the White House. <laughs> the only American to really actually see Captain America is this little kid with a camera. Just that one sighting, that split second sighting while he's trying to kick something kick the missile away from the white house it is enough to inspire him to become president that's right and to to get rid of all disposable plastics oh goodness (laughs) and hey i'm all for reusable plastics and for saving the earth but yeah you got to give people a little bit more time that's really the moral of the story is if you're going to institute reforms you better give people a reasonable amount of time to do so or else they might kidnap you <laughs> and try to control your mind. That's, that's exactly right. So there there you have it. Captain America 1990. Paul, where do you put this on the Hurt So Good scale for you? Oh, man, that's a really good question. You know, these scales are always so hard because I, I judge movies differently every single time. I do have to say, I think I enjoyed this more than Attack of the Monsters. So I did. Yeah. I think I gave that what, what so if it goes down to like negative 10 that's negative really 10. terrible and yet it's really good, right? Right. Like if you have a negative 10 that's that is the ultimate bad movie. Yeah, that's fun. That's your sniffing troll 2 territory there. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go I am going to go negative 7.5. Yeah, I was going to go negative 6.5 on this one. Uh in part because it's really it's almost not hurt so good it's almost just a hurts film but then the more you think about it it was sort of like a napoleon dynamite for me where the more i thought about it the funnier it became like the sequence where you get an ultra close-up as they're fighting against the red skull at the end on cap's face and he's like hey mr president then it cuts over to the president and then cuts back to captain america thanks and he puts up a big thumbs up with his big <laughs> dumb red like fringe gloves and, you know, just has some really great stuff in it. Or yeah. the fact, like you said, that his his master plan to ditch his friends is to pretend like he needs to vomit. You know, that's just that's some really hurt so good <laughs> stuff right there. It really is. And the fact that I enjoyed talking about it. Almost as much as I enjoyed the movie, I think speaks to its hurt so good qualities. I this this might this might rival China Salesman in my mind. It's it's not too far off. It's a it's a darn good hurt so good film, and it is available on YouTube, as Paul mentioned. But now it's time for the most least important thing. Here we are at the most least important thing, the way we love to wrap up every single little show of ours, making mountains into molehills, molehills into mountains, because we are some wicked, nasty warlocks. That's not true. We are not warlocks. (laughs) I'm not here to get Paul fired for pretending to be a warlock. But Paul, what do you have for us today? So I actually have a little bit of breaking news. It won't be breaking news by the time this comes out, and it might even be completely debunked 
But since we're talking about Captain America, I thought it only wise to bring up another captain in the MCU. Mm. And that would be Captain Marvel. Rumor has it, and this may even be close to being confirmed, Brie Larson may be out as Captain Marvel in the MCU. What? Kid you not. Um, There is rumors that she is leaving, that they are going to recast Captain America because Brie... There's a lot of people out there in the Twitterverse that don't particularly like Brie Larson as Captain Captain Marvel. Um, There's some talk that she didn't get along that well with some of her co-workers when it came to the Avengers movies. Um, I personally would be sad to see Brie go. I really like her as an actress. She is really good. And I think that maybe the problem isn't so much with Brie, but the, the character of Captain Marvel itself. You know, it's just a weird character. So powerful. So it's it's hard to figure out what to do with a character like that. Right. We talked about that when we reviewed Captain Marvel, how when you have these super overpowered characters like a Captain Marvel, like a Superman, it's tough to make them feel particularly compelling. And I and I think we talked about this, too, for Captain Marvel, where a lot of it was. Uh, done, you know, a lot of it is CGI and green screen. It's really tough to get good performances in that context. And I thought the stuff where she was away from the green screen and dealing with real people was better. I think Brie Larson is a really good actress. Um, I, I obviously don't know her personally. She's done a really good job at creating a very likable public persona. You know, so it's not somebody yes. like Mickey Rourke where you're like, yeah, I totally get that they're probably uh, <laughs> terrible on set. She seems really down to earth. Yeah. yeah. She seems more relatable even than Jennifer Lawrence yes. by my, you know, estimation. I would agree with that. So is she really hiding a secret dark side? I haven't seen these rumbles. I'll have, this is breaking news to me. So I'll have to dig into this a little bit further. I, I think that would be a bummer because I think she's got a lot of talent. So. Yeah, I, I would be really sad to see her go. I can't say that Captain Marvel, again, is one of my favorite characters in the MCU, but yeah. I do like, I would like to see more of her. I I feel a little bit like what I might have felt with maybe a, a quarterback in the NFL who had a bad year. You know, you just want to give them one more year to see what they can do. One more film. One more film. One more film. One more film. This would kind of be unique because they have not really done this with really hardly any other characters short of how they early on decided they weren't going to go with Edward Norton as the Hulk. And we're going to, but that, that was kind of pre MCU. Was it Canon? Is it not Canon? I mean, ultimately it did because they brought the general in, but they don't typically move on like on a lot of these characters. So that would be interesting. It would be interesting. So my most least important thing is an important, this is breaking news because we are the ones making this news. And that is we have an official result in the 2020, 2021 fantasy movie award season league. The Oscars are in, the SAGs are in, BAFTAs are in, all of the movie award season uh, wins have been announced and so it's time to announce the winner of our league if for those of you who remember i was holding a 100 to 83 lead over paul after all the nominations were in and we had not gotten yet 
to hear who won these awards. And that's, as we talked about then, that's where a lot of points can be made up in our league because, you know, you only get two points for an Oscar nomination, but you get six for a win. You only get one point for a Golden Globe or SAG or BAFTA nomination, but you get three points for wins in those categories. And so Paul definitely was in striking distance coming into the fourth quarter of the league. And after uh, I was carrying that 100 point to 83 point lead, the final total, final score here, Paul with 166 points, Jake, 130 points. Oh my goodness. Wow. Wins do matter. Storming back. That this is actually the the most exciting uh, fantasy film league competition we've had cuz you killed me last year. I okay. killed you the year before. This was this was almost like an overtime victory it feels like. It I mean it certainly kept things very interesting as I was t- tallying up all the different scores uh, to see you know, with my formulas to see Paul's total, like slowly catching up with mine and then passing it and then shooting past it. Yeah. As a refresher in our first season, Paul, you scored 137 points to my 46 points. So you had a 91 (laughs) point victory. Then I swung that by 140 points and ended up beating you by plus 50 with 150 points last year to your 100. And uh, so I think what was really interesting uh, then to look at you scoring the most points that have ever been scored in a uh, fanboy know-it-all fantasy movie award season league with 166 is that uh, we've both improved like the overall scores of the league. The scoring's gone up because our drafting's got a lot better. My second point. Iron sharpens iron. Yeah, my second point total here uh, would have won last year by the same margin you won by this year, and would have been would have had us down to the wire. Last second field goal wins the game for Paul in season one, and yet our the winning score has increased yeah. each season. You know, I'm impressed with it, our learnings. It is pretty Paul. interesting. I I am too. I think that that part of that is because maybe we're not. You know, we usually have a pretty good idea of who might mop up at the awards. Uh, we don't necessarily, we almost always seem to pick a movie or two that gets goose egged. And I think maybe our goose egg movies are dwindling a little bit. I, I think I chose Tenet, didn't I? Because I thought it might do well in some of those, some of those more technical categories. And in it really did underperform for me a lot. And yet it still won an Oscar. I was going to say, actually, uh, Tenet, was not your un- most underperforming film and actually ended up being a good pickup for you. Uh, yeah, you're right. In previous years, our our films that have done poorly are getting four points or five points or uh, one point or even zero points. We have had true goose eggs. I'm actually the only owner of a goose egg film with uh, year one where I picked up Mortal Engines with my last pick, thinking it would get some technical <laughs> awards like Tenet. Uh, and it did not. It just got yeah. completely goose egged. Uh, but yeah, Paul, actually your worst film, th- this speaks to sort of the impressiveness of the top of your draft and that your number four pick only got one point this year. You, It was the personal oh. history of David Copperfield, which got one Man, that Golden was such Globe a good nomination. Movie. I, I, that should have done better. 
It was it was such a nice movie. People, if you haven't seen The Personal History of David Copperfield, go see it. It's great. No matter what these award people say. Yeah. So your your tenant pick actually ended up with 14 points. And that means it outperformed two of my picks. It outperformed One Night in Miami, which only got 12 points, and The Five Bloods, which only ended up with 9 points. That's interesting. That is very interesting. So that bit, that Oscar win really made a big difference for you. Yeah, yeah. Nomadland was my top pick, and that did quite well for me. What was your top go vote getter? My top, my top pick was uh, Mank. Yep. And uh, when I was looking back at totals, the, I got forty four points out of Mank, which is a good number one pick. When you look at past years, the number one scorer in uh, last year's league was once upon a time in Hollywood with 49. So Mank with 44 Mm -hmm. is right there in season one. Our highest scorer was the favorite with 45 points. So again, Mank performed like a number one pick. It's just that Nomadland so far outperformed our previous year's best picks. It scored 65 points. It was a pretty good movie. No one has seen it, but it was pretty good. Nomadland really uh, was Nomadland was like the Peyton Manning of the draft, and that you know it was yeah. one pick and it played like it. The LeBron James, it could do everything, you know. But I was still, you know, the thing with those Oscar wins are when they flip, that's a twelve point swing, and so I think you know I wasn't mm-hmm. within striking distance of a couple of those flop my way. Like for example, Mank was actually leading with 10 nominations for Oscars compared to the next uh, most were, was Minari, which I had on my team with seven nominations. Yeah. Uh, and so I had, and then I had the trial of Chicago seven that had six nominations that matched the father and nomad land for you, but f- the father and nomad land pulled down uh, in Ma Rainey's black bottom. You ended up pulling in, seven Oscar wins from those alone. And then you got Tenet. So you pulled in eight Oscar wins to my three. Yeah. I tell you, that's, that's actually super interesting because, you know, the nominations are, are very important, but in that weighted, in the weighted system that we do, which I think is the right way to do it. The the wins just can make such a huge difference. They can make such a huge difference. Way to go. Francis McDormand. Thank you very much. And Chloe Zhao, Chloe Zhao Zhao. as the director. So some notable undrafted flicks. Like I mentioned, Paul's number four pick only scored one point in the entire season. His number five pick scored. His number five pick scored fourteen. My number four pick scored twelve, and my number five pick pick scored nine. And we left movies like Judas and the Black Messiah on the sideline. They did not, that did not get picked. Of course, neither of us could have seen it when we drafted. Right. But that scored 40 points. So, I mean, that scored in uh, low end first round, high end second round uh, territory. Sound of Metal, Paul, scored 38 points. Sound of Metal. Yeah. Yeah. That's a movie I still haven't seen, to be honest with you. I have not either. And Soul, this was interesting, an animated film. Scored thirty six points. Wow! So that you know, I'm that's into, fascinating. Yeah, I mean, the implications that could potentially have, because neither of us thought that was Pixar's yeah. best film, and we've seen Pixar films kind of get 
blanked in other years or not blanked, but just not do great. So the fact that, uh, you know, an animated film scored that many points is could have potential ramifications in upcoming seasons. No, I, I, that's really true. I think Judas and the Black Messiah, I don't think either of us could be blamed for not picking it because we just didn't know anything about it. Yeah, we Soul, we actually November. did on this show. We hadn't yeah. seen Soul yet. Yeah. And so it would be tough to pick a kid's animated film that we hadn't seen to, to score yeah. so well. But it outscored. The only one I had seen when I drafted was The Trial of the Chicago 7. And that was my number two pick. It only got 27 points on the season. Soul scored 36. So pretty fascinating. Uh, We'll see how that plays out when we get to the draft for the 2021-22 Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All Fantasy Movie Awards Season League. Who knows? Who knows? (laughs) But the scores are tightening. I'm already excited for it. It's growing. All right, that's it for this episode of Pop Culture with Fanboy and Know-It-All. You can always catch up with us on Twitter. I'm at Jake underscore Roberson. I'm at AC Paul. But until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Bye.